Kia ora and welcome to the Marlborough Book Festival podcast, the place where you can hear writers talk about their work, their lives and the inspiration behind their writing. I'm Sonia, the chair of the committee, and today I'm thrilled to be introducing the inspiring Paula Morris. Paula delivers a lecture on the fascinating, chaotic and groundbreaking life of the New Zealand journalist, poet, fiction writer and war correspondent Iris Wilkinson, aka Robin Hyde. Paula and distinguished photographer Haru Samishima went off the beaten track to produce Shining Land looking for Robin Hyde, a picture book made for grown-ups which explores Robin Hyde by visiting three locations of her life. Thanks to everyone who made the 2022 Marlborough Book Festival such a success. Every fortnight we will share sessions from this year's event, all the way through to the 2023 Marlborough Book Festival. For now, please enjoy this lecture by Paula Morris. Kia ora. Kia ora, Belinda, thank you. Yes, I'm Paula Morris, and my talk today includes quite a lot of visual material. Some are archive images, and some are photographs taken by Haru Samashima, who was my collaborator on the book Shining Land. It's really a book of two essays, one visual and one written. Haru had COVID, so he couldn't do my presentation as I had secretly hoped. So I'm afraid you've got me in PowerPoint instead. So our subject in the book and our subject today is an iconic New Zealand writer, born in Cape Town, raised in Wellington. And her short life was very much overshadowed by war, by the Boer War, of which her father was a veteran and it's how her parents met. Uh, the First World War, which took place during her childhood, and almost every man that was important to her in her life, including the ones she had ill-advised sex with, um, were veterans of the First World War. And the Japanese invasion of China in the 30s was also a very important war for her in particular. She um, went to the front line, she wrote about it for newspapers, and she wrote a book called Dragon Rampant about it. And then the other war that is a shadow on her life is the Second World War, and it was just about to begin when she died in London. It was weeks away from beginning. But today I thought we would start our talk in a strange place in a strange time, January 1931, and this young woman arrived in Auckland to start a new job. So she was a journalist. Her name was Iris Wilkinson. She was already publishing creative work under the name Robin Hyde and she just turned 25 years old. So let's see if this works. Good, but I was supposed to have done that like three minutes ago. <laughs> Look at this very quickly and I'll move on. So by this point, at the age of 25, Iris had worked for newspapers in Wellington, Christchurch and Whanganui, but Auckland would be her final home in New Zealand. She'd be there for and report on the Queen Street riots of 1932, which were part of a nationwide wave of protests at the time when the Depression was hitting very hard. Um, one of those pictures up there is of smashed windows during the Queen Street riots. It's a sad reflection, I'm going off piste here, um, when I mention the Queen Street riots to Aucklanders and they think I'm talking about something that involved Dave Dobbin. <laughs> Iris did not report on that. Now, for someone so young, and actually, let's go back to that picture of her. For someone so young, she bore many wounds and many secrets. At the age of 18, her right knee swelled, and it was possibly TB, an infection, tubercular infection. 
So she had iron splints, she had crutches, she had a number of invasive surgeries. For the rest of her life, she walked with a stick. And you think this is someone who loved the outdoors and did a lot of climbing of mountains as well as you know, walking around on the front line in Japan, in China rather. Uh, she was given morphine as part of her treatment and this began years of drug dependency. The wounds were also not just physical because at the age of 20, seeking treatment for her legs, she went to Rotorua for a summer holiday. And in fact, the treatment there made her leg worse and she also had a short love affair, her first really, and that resulted in a pregnancy. The baby was still born and she took part of his name, Christopher Robin Hyde, as what she called her nom de guerre. Now more recently, before she arrived in Auckland, working at the Wanganui Chronicle as lady editor, Iris had another short-lived affair and another pregnancy. And she later wrote, I have always been punished for loving too little, never for loving too much. Her baby, Derek Arden Chalice, his last name and invention, was born in Picton in late October 1930, and we'll talk about Picton quite a lot in this talk. I hope none of you here are anti-Picton in any way. Is anyone here from Picton? We have one person representing, that is very good. Um, the baby was born in Picton, and then Iris smuggled him back to Wellington on the Cook Strait Ferry and placed him in a nursing home. And without a job, all she could do was stay at a very unhappy parent's home and tell absolutely no one about the baby. No one in her family, that is. The only way out of Wellington was a new job on a small Auckland weekly called The Observer. It offered her four pounds a week and the chance to lead an independent life again. When she moved to Auckland in 1931, she knew no one. She'd never even seen a copy of The Observer before they offered her a job. Baby Derek was three months old and she left him in a nursing home, well, actually boarding with a foster mother in Palmerston North and sent a quarter of her pay there each week. So imagine having a baby who has to be the deepest of secrets. Eventually her mother worked out the truth, but her father knew nothing and her father actually went to his grave not knowing. Her employer could never know because any employer would not hire her if they knew she was a single mother. So Derek was in Palmerston North, she missed him, she worried about him, she worried about the debt she still owed, including to the hospital in Picton. So her need to earn money and to take care of her son, her unfulfilled desire to make a home with him, were the increasingly desperate imperatives of her Auckland life and of her life generally. So it was in Auckland that Iris, overworked, sick, exhausted, jumped off a wharf into the harbour. She was held in a police cell at Auckland Hospital, then sent to the mental hospital in Avondale. And some of you will be familiar with what became Carrington, Oakley, Carrington, now part of the Unitec campus. Her home there, most of the time, was at an extramural ward, an Edwardian house you can still see there on Gladstone Road on the edge of the hospital grounds. That's pictured up there too. The building she called the Grey Lodge, stained glass windows, airy rooms, covered verandas. The women resident there were all suffering from what was called nervous disorders. I think I was suffering from one of those myself this morning. Um, they tended the gardens. The house faced west towards the main buildings of the asylum and then the Waitemata Harbour, farmland, the Waitakere Ranges. 
And one of the buildings in the hospital complex was, uh, uh, Iris said, for returned soldiers who lost their reason. And during the first months there, she was actually exiled back to the general wards for a time as a punishment for drug smuggling. But the lodge would be her home on and off for almost four years. Some of you familiar in Auckland have probably driven past it on Carrington Road. You may recognise it. Um, A year passed there before her psychiatrist, Dr Gilbert Tottle, who was eventually a real friend and ally to her, persuaded her to write a memoir as writing therapy. Now, her refuge in the lodge was the attic. So if you can see on that picture, like a little window in the roof, that's the attic where she wrote. Hara and I were able to infiltrate it. This, in fact, this green door is the door that leads up to the attic. Those are the stairs. Imagine if you are on a walking stick. It's quite difficult. It's difficult for me, but that's because I have enormous feet like a model. So... Rude laughter. And Har- this is one of Hari's pictures um, when we were allowed, allowed to go in the building. So up in that attic, Iris was allowed to work at a typewriter. And that's where she wrote and wrote and wrote. It was a very productive time for her. Uh, a, a publisher in London had already published her, her first poetry collection. Uh, Dr. Tottle also suggest- suggested she write a book called Journalese, um, which was just a compilation of her journalism which another London publisher published in 1934. And then she wrote the historical novel, Check to Your King. She um, published Passport to Hell, which is one of the great World War I books. I really recommend you read it if you haven't already. And its sequel, Nor the Years Condemned, was also written during those years in Auckland and published while she was in Shanghai. Many of the girlhood memories that she wrote down for Dr. Tottle were reshaped into her most famous novel, The Godwits Fly, which was published in 1937. That was the same year she published another novel, Wednesday's Children, in a poetry collection, Persephone in Winter. One of her friends remembered Iris as a woman for whom work came first, she said. It was her main task in life. As well as sole access to the attic, Iris was given the only private bedroom in the lodge and her own small patch of garden, And she wrote about that time, she wrote, I came to this asylum of yours, not because I was mad, but because I needed madness if I were to survive. So let's rewind a little bit and think about Iris in the South Island and how her two pregnancies, her two sons, brought her here. First to Hanmer Springs in May of 1927 and then to Derville Island in Picton in 1930. So... The road to Hanmer Springs begins in steamy old Rotorua, the summer of 1926. Uh, She thought maybe in Rotorua she'd find a cure, but she did not. She was staying at the old Prince's Gate Hotel, and also staying at the hotel was a 27-year-old man called Frederick de Mulford Hyde. He was tall and dark and slim. He'd flown with the Royal Flying Corps during the war, And she commented that he was circled by a fluttering crowd of older women. You know what older women are like. He met Iris over afternoon tea, which was quite civilised. And then one night she woke up flustered by a bad dream, heard a mystery noise in the garden, went out to investigate. It was a horse loose in the garden. And when she came back to her room, Frederick opened his door. 
Wahey, right? She said he looked a bit oriental in his dressing gown. He invited her in for a drink. There was a scarlet silk kerchief over the lamp. But she said this was not the seduction of a dream-dazed girl. He moved into an old house in Rotorua. She spent a lot of her time there, you know, doing general house tidying, listening to him sing, having sex, she said, which could be an exultant and mysterious physical thing. Remember, she was 20 years old. But what she didn't know was one of this fluttering crowd of older women was also sleeping with Frederick. A woman called Alice Algy, who was almost 40 and also herself a war widow. Her father was the architect Benjamin Corlett, who helped design the iconic Rotorua bathhouse where Iris was taking her restorative baths. And in fact, Alice owned the house where Frederick was staying. When Iris told him she might be pregnant, he accused her of betrayal. He was, she thought, a weary young man who had gone too early to a war. So she caught the train back to Wellington. Her mother rumbled her secret immediately, called her a harlot, and demanded a wedding. So there was no wedding. But she did what a lot of women have done probably before and definitely since. She went to Australia. She gave birth to the baby Christopher Robin Hyde in Sydney. Frederick had paid for the cabin to get her over there. But the baby was stillborn. And she was allowed to hold him, and she says, taking in his white sweetness. Sorry, she was allowed to look at him, but not to hold him. She didn't even know where he was buried. So at the end of 1926, if you imagine that's happened to you, the age of 20, she returns to New Zealand and headed straight for Rotorua to see Frederick, and he had just got married to Alice. So she took whatever drugs she could buy from every chemist in town and then was basically dispatched on a hospital tour of the North Island. Hamilton, then Palmerston North, more morphine, force feeding, a final visit from Frederick. And she was only safe from Poirua Mental Hospital by a sympathetic doctor who sent her home to have a nervous breakdown cared for by her family, and only her mother knew why. And Glenn Metcalf, who was her closest friend, wrote many years later, it is a lot to happen to a girl before she is 20. Now, in May 1927, Hyde was admitted to Queen Mary Hospital in Hanmer Springs. Are you familiar with this place? So it was originally um, treating shell-shocked soldiers, Right, that's, in fact, here are some being treated. This is rehabilitation for soldiers after the First World War. And she spent uh, nine months here, sorry, five months here. So that's her in the grounds of Hanmer Springs. She spent a lot of time walking around outside. This is one of Hari's pictures of the building now. And uh, in fact, part of this is the cover for our book, Shining Land. I wanted the really great... Um, lurid medicine bottles suggesting drugs, but I was outvoted on that. This is some pictures that, that Harry took inside the building now, lest we forget how institutional it is. And this was looking out towards the ward where she stayed. Now, the medical superintendent of Queen Mary Hospital described her as suffering from hysteria and insomnia. And there was no doubt, he said, that her condition was definitely attributable to a history. 
She was prescribed peraldehyde, which I learned is a central nervous system depressant and sedative. But she was given her own little room to rest and recover. She continued to write, especially poetry, and published it in various newspapers and spent a lot of time outdoors. She loved the South Island and she walked here extensively and toured around extensively. She said, the sheer beauty of that place saved my mind. So after this convalescence, she was able to return to Wellington, freelance journalism, temporary jobs, including work for a newspaper, The Truth, which some of you may remember. Her mother referred to it as that dirty paper. So early in 1929, she was back in the South Island. She worked for the Christchurch Sun for three happy months. Does anyone remember the Sun or you were too young? Okay. Uh, John Schroeder, her mentor, mentor, said, this was the period when I first learned something of her astonishing fluency and quickness, her aptitude for widely different sorts of writing, and her capacity for sheer hard work. She had another brief sexual relationship there with her news editor, Mac Vincent, in his 30s, veteran of Gallipoli, married. This was quite a pattern. He was an outdoorsman. He took her on many hikes and excursions. And she said the relationship was the opposite of the one with Frederick because it took place in broad sunlight. Mac was a man, she said, who really did love and respect my body, even though I had for years been a cripple. So she left the South Island to take up a more lucrative position in Whanganui, work, writing for the newspaper The Chronicle, editing their ladies' pages. She was 23 years old. And though she often put up a very brave face in public. She was really sinking with depression. She was in mourning for her youthful love, Harry Sweetman, who had recently died in England, and for her baby, whose existence was a secret from almost everyone, including all her sisters. She was working very hard at the Chronicle, but wrote that she was fretting for two dead people, cutting myself off from the living. So she met another journalist, a man in his 30s, veteran of Gallipoli, also married, Harry Lawson Smith, a reporter for the Martin newspaper. She said they became lovers without premeditation, almost by accident. And as soon as she found out he was married with children, quite a lot of them, she said the liaison ended, but it was too late. She was pregnant. Lawson Smith asked her if she could find her share of 20 pounds for an abortion. Well, she wrote, I thought, you can't say we haven't got sex equality, all right. So she took leave of absence from the Wanganui Chronicle to seek treatment for a heart condition. And she took the Tamahine from Wellington to French Pass, where she said the jetty was lit only by a tin lantern containing a candle. And then she moved somewhere even more secluded, Derville Island. It's a has anyone been to Devil Island here? I'm sure many of you have. Who's been there, just out of interest? Quite a few of you. I mean, it's quite rugged these days, isn't it? So think what it was like then. Um, I mean, it was a place then without roads, where people had to visit each other by boat. The nearest hospital for her to have the baby was in Picton, and that could only be reached by launch, and only then in good weather. Have things changed much? That sounds... Hmm. So she had a fake wedding ring and a pseudonym, Mrs. Chalice. But the Hope family with whom she boarded 
weren't fooled. I'm just going to show you this. That's one of Hari's pictures. So imagine it was winter, wet and cold, the only lighting in the house, candles and kerosene lamps, water had to be pumped. And she said, there are only two men on the island. She wrote this in the letter. She was exaggerating. And one of them has many children and no hair or teeth. <laughs> so she spent as much time as she could outdoors. She was really taken with the rugged beauty of the island, the gannets, the rocks. And later she wrote that the island began a reunion of sorts with the things she loved most. My human relationships are rather failures, she said but there's a close, sensitive comradeship with the loveliness of earth which touches me and kindles me as nothing else can do. Now, Mrs. Hope was wary of her young, obviously pregnant and obviously single house guest and insisted she move to Picton. So Iris went reluctantly, but she grew to love her new town. Unfortunately, it did not always love her. Her mail was sent to a post office box but one forgetful moment, she asked her landlady's daughter to pick it up for her. And of course, none of the letters were addressed to Mrs. Chalice. They were addressed to Miss Wilkinson or to Robin Hyde. The landlady told her she was a wicked woman and threw her out. The doctor who was overseeing her pregnancy found her somewhere else to stay. And eventually she found a landlady who cared more about 25 shillings than she did about whether someone was married or not. Um, she spent most of her time there writing. She played chess with an elderly archdeacon who was no doubt someone's ancestor in this room. She was also visited by the elderly scholar Edward Trigier at the end of his life because he was living in the Marlborough Sounds. She was still writing columns for the Wanganui Chronicle. A few weeks before her baby was born, the Chronicle fired her, saying that the columns were no longer required. Now, she suspected that news of her pregnancy had reached them somehow. But the main thing was she had no income, no source of income, no job to return to. And the baby's father sent through a little bit of money, but he had many children of his own and a wife who didn't know anything about this. So after a labour of 18 hours, baby Derek was born in Picton Hospital. That was the version of Picton Hospital that existed then. Two earthquakes occurred during the labour. And Iris wrote, it shook the little wooden theatre to its foundations. He was a ridiculously good baby, she said. And to Gwen, she wrote, he is just two things of Lawson, pointy chin with a dimple in it and exquisite long-fingered hands. So you can see she did not really feel any romantic feelings towards the father. Now, the little sad coda to this is because she was known in Picton, she came here to Blenheim to register the baby's birth. And she was weeping while she did it because he had to be registered as illegitimate. That's why she didn't want to do it in Picton. When Derek was six weeks old, she bought a dress basket to carry him back to Wellington on the Tamahine. She couldn't risk a cradle or a cot of any kind, any sort of thing that would show he was a baby because his existence was a secret from anyone there. And in fact, she bumped into someone she knew on the ferry. So it was, she was particularly... Um, worried that someone would know. Her family thought she was on a working holiday and a doctor helped her find a temporary home for the baby, a nursing home where she could visit during the day. Iris's mother, who's quite a ferocious character called Nellie, 
wasn't happy to have her daughter home. In the house then, Iris wrote, I found myself hated. There is no other word. I had deliberately lost a good, profitable job, playing about for six months round islands and channels. I didn't even look appealing. You look about 30, her mother said, fat and coarse. I can hardly believe that you're my daughter. She needed work to take care of herself and take care of her secret baby. And this is why she took the job in Auckland when Derek was just a few months old. She lived at first in a boarding house, then in a small flat, which she described as a room with a folding up bed, a tin roof veranda divided into kitchenette and bathroom, but plenty of clean hot water. She moved Derek up to Auckland so she could see him more often, but he lived with his foster parents, Ivy and Ben Hudson in Sandringham. And my husband and I got to spend time with Derek before he died uh, last year. And on the wall here is pictures of his foster parents hanging, along with pictures of, um, of Iris and Harry Lawson Smith. Iris, you have to think, was more like an aunt than a mother to Derek. She was there for days out, gifts of clothing, but her responsibility was to earn money for his upkeep. Now, even worse, it was a depression. Ben Hudson lost his job, and the family had to move to a railway department camp in Hawke's Bay. Most of Iris's communication with them then was about money. And between Derek's second birthday and his fifth birthday, she wrote, I never saw him. She lived in Auckland for seven years, and then she sailed away to China and to Britain at the beginning of 1938. The last time Derek talked with his mother, it was in the Auckland domain. The last time he saw Iris, it was on the wharf, saying goodbye to the ship. And he has this memory, he told us, of running towards the ship and a man grabbing him because he was almost going to go over into the water. He was seven years old. And his foster father, Ben Hudson, died the following month of kidney failure. So he lost two parents very close together. From China, Iris wrote a letter to Derek that he did not see until 1995 because someone had kept it from him. My dearest little Derek, she wrote, I hope you won't get this little note, but if you do, it means that Mother Iris can't come back to you, however much she would like to. Now, at this time, she was on the front line and she was afraid she would be killed by a Japanese bomb. But Iris survived China but not London. England was the end of the road for her. And this is one of the last photographs taken of her in England. Just before the outbreak of World War II, Iris died of benzodrine poisoning. And the note she left was signed both Iris Wilkinson and Robin Hyde. I think she died two people. She was always these two people. My guest this evening, Steve Brawny, is one of New Zealand's best-known journalists and authors. Steve, welcome to the Marlborough Book Festival 2022. As an author, uh, I'm very lucky in being sort of sent around the country to literary festivals like this. And I kid you not, by the way, uh, Blenheim. And I think I've been to I've been to everyone except the one in Blackball. But uh, of all of them, uh, I've been here twice before, and this is the best. This is actually the best. Yeah, no, thank you. It's, it's just the vibe of it. It's really great. It's really welcoming and friendly. 
had an interesting comment on it. Uh, I'm quite good friends with um, a musician called Shane Carter. I, he said, oh, uh, what are you doing this weekend? I said, oh, I'm going to, um, going to Blenheim for the Literary Festival, the Books Festival. And he said, oh, New Zealand's best books festival. There you go. So um, that is the end of my talk, which I think has probably killed all your buzzers quite successfully. And all that wine you've had is now worn off. But I wondered if anyone had any questions at all, I would be happy to take them, because obviously this is just a very small glimpse into a very rich and complex life. And if you do have a question, please put your hand up. This Kate's got one. How, how, did she, how did she come to write those, um, those books, those sort of biographical World War I soldier books? She, you think, because she was first and foremost a journalist, that was one of the things she really noticed around Auckland, um, was all these men who had fought in the war and were now out of work, often sleeping rough or sleeping in this, this uh, city mission DOS house. And she got to know Starkey, the subject of Passport to Hell, through um, his shenanigans at Mount Eden. He was, you know, became quite a fabled character, you know, a larrikin who basically had fought very bravely at Gallipoli in the Somme, but also had been court-martialed multiple times and was in endless trouble. And he actually lived on Grays Avenue, which is where my husband and I live today, and in one of the old ramshackle houses that was pulled down when they did slum clearances. And she writes quite movingly of the ghosts that came to his house, all these men who were really damaged by the war, maybe physically, maybe mentally, maybe both, and could not work. And I think she felt enormous empathy for these men who had been through hell. And so that's, that was a lot of her motivation for writing about it. She was also, I think, um, an absolute workaholic. And I think she saw her time at the lodge as a chance to investigate and tell stories and write as much as possible. She took every opportunity. They let her out, she would catch a tram into the Auckland Library and do her research there, was allowed to go and interview people, then would go back to the mental hospital at night. Does that answer your question, Kate? Great. Are there any other questions? Yes, over here, thanks. Just wait a second. Oh no, it's for the, it's for the recording. Um. Do you reckon she was just like a real opportunist? And what was she doing in China? She was on her way to Britain. Okay. So the boat stopped in Hong Kong yeah. and she spent some time there and then the war was happening and because she was a journalist, you know, she really wanted to go and tell the story. And then when she got there, she became very engrossed in the story. She met many people, she made many friends and she became quite obsessed with the war and I think I mean, I think that she really had her own version of PTSD when she went to England to find out nobody cared about what was going on in China. They were still interested in the Spanish Civil War. That was the war that they were concerned about. And then the looming Second World War, that was what they cared about. So she wrote Dragon Rampant to get people in England interested because she said, the Japanese won't stop there. They'll, they'll move through Asia and into the Pacific. And nobody really cared or took it seriously. So I think... But what she was driven there for, I think, is, is the scent of a story. We have um, at least one journalist in the room, and I think possibly the thing that characterises a true journalist is the enormous curiosity in 
stories and people and what people do and, and why they do it. And she was, yeah, she was an opportunist in that sense. But she was also used to hustling because she was a woman journalist at a time when there weren't very many and they were supposed to write about the races and dances and things like that. And she had to fight quite hard to write about more serious things and get those uh, commissions. Can I say something else? Mm. I've been watching this um, cool TV show called The First Lady. And there's this one part of it that's about Eleanor Roosevelt. And she had to do this thing, like, she wanted to be an activist, right? She wanted to talk about all these amazing things that the public were not privy to. But she had to do this, like, special, like, women's version of, like, press conferences in order to, like, get that message mm -hmm. across. And it just seems like there's a bit of similarity. Like, she, Robin Hyde was running that women's section in the Chronicle up in North Island. And that's why she had so many names, because a lot of her yeah. things were published under different pseudonyms, like Margot or Aunt This or That. And then Robin Hyde was a different persona she had. So a lot of her journalism appears under the name Robin Hyde, which sounds like it could be a man's name, obviously, more than a woman's name. So she operated all these different personas in order to write different things. Often in any given issue of The Observer, she would have written six different things in different sections under different names. Yeah, I mean, you had to hustle because women journalists did not have it easy then. There's a question here up the front, and then one over there. So while, so while she was in care, would she have been writing articles, and therefore it gave her a little bit of income, or did she have an allowance? Or No, she had no allowance, so she was writing for income um, when she could, yes. So that's that became this constant in her life, the need to publish to earn money to look after herself and to look after her son because the alternative was living at home with, um, with her family. And her parents were not very happily married. They had married in haste and repented at leisure, which, as you know, is the traditional way. And, I mean, to speak of hypocrisy, her mother was five months pregnant when she got married, which was quite common, but, you know... But then the next generation is supposed to be, you know, absolutely virtuous, beyond reproach. So she was always trying to make money. And that's why, she, yes, when she was at Hanmer, she was still writing for the Chronicle to keep money coming in. It wasn't a huge amount, but it was something. And that's why she would move around a lot, move around New Zealand, because she needed to go where the work was. That's, in fact, why she went to London as well. Um, it was to do with making money. I wondered if you had a sense of what made her so brave, because obviously necessity once she had her child, but I mean, she was doing some extraordinary things at a young age, and she obviously didn't have parental support. You know, her parents mm. weren't saying, you go, you know. I think in lots of ways she was quite a difficult woman. I mean, she was really plagued by many demons. Lots of people who came to know her would complain that she, you know, was hopeless at looking after herself, you know, she would you know, subsist on toast. She would be very unkempt a lot of the time. She, she was not the usual thing. And she didn't really necessarily care about appearances as well. She was much more interested in writing. And then she absolutely had a great love for her son. But she was still not necessarily the best person to provide a, a stable home for him. And not that she had a possibility anyway. 
I think she was in part brave simply because she often talked about being born at the wrong time or being born, she said, at the hinge of, of times when things were changing. If she'd been born 20 or 30 years later, I think it would have been quite different for her. But she was between these worlds, and so I don't know that she was brave or she was just quite single-minded. And also, I wonder for women then, you took one step in the wrong direction. There was no going back. You may as well just keep going. That's why I think, I mean, I think that was one of the things that made her realise she didn't want to get married to Frederick when they had the opportunity before she had the baby because she thought they would have made each other unhappy. So that, that makes her a bit different from many of her peers, maybe. There's, there's, one, there's brave and then there's also foolish, right? And often the two things go together. I speak as someone who does foolish things all the time. Yeah, Rachel. I did, you said that you spent time with her son. Did he, was he old enough to remember her at all or have any sense of a relationship with her? He did remember her, but it was in flashes because, yeah, she left when he was seven. And so he had these memories of her, but descending more like a, a lovely aunt, you know, for special occasions, but not, not really. And I think for him, not really having a relationship with his birth father, he, he told us he met him once when he was older, and when uh, Harry Lawson Smith died, his, one of his sons said to Derek, well, you're our brother. I didn't know the old man had it in him. <laughs> but I think for Derek, that was a, a big hurt and a big loss, especially when your mother becomes quite famous. And so she becomes this, this big figure in New Zealand literature that lots of people want to research and write about. And yet to you, she's still this lost mother of your very early childhood, about whom you can only have positive memories, really. You know, she was never cruel to him in any way. There was a real sadness. And when he told us the story of running to the ship and nearly falling in, it was quite heartbreaking. There's, oh, sorry, there's a question here, then we'll come back. Yes. Um, her death by benzodrine poisoning, does that suggest it was suicide or not? Yeah, yeah. I mean, of course we can't know definitively, no. but yes. I've read accounts that there was an alarm was raised that the New Zealand High Commissioner to London was alerted to this and there was some attempt made to get to her and to try and do something to intervene, but it was too late. John A. Lee, actually, who was a great friend of hers here, wrote some years earlier trying to get some money for her from someone in the government and he said, I'm really afraid that she's going to end her own life. I think a lot of people who knew her thought that there was a distinct possibility. And Darcy Cresswell in London was very alert to it as well. I don't know that she necessarily wanted to be saved that time. She did say when she jumped into the Waitemata that, that I think she kind of expected to be saved. But this time I don't know that she did. But we can never really know people's intentions. She did leave a, a note sort of saying what she wanted done with her papers. So I think she at least had half an expectation she might not survive. She was someone who walked a very fine edge in her life all the time, I think. Alex Calder's theory is that she just really overworked herself and then would get into these very deep pits that she couldn't find a way back out of. Yes, Sue? Yeah. Um, how was it approaching her son for the first time? Um, how easy was it to find him? And also... Um, what was that interaction like when you appeared in his life wanting to write about him in, in respect of his mother? It was quite scary, actually, because her and I had already done the book. So 
I, I wanted him to see it. And he lives, oh, he lived out in West Auckland. His widow, Lynn, still lives there. Just chatted with her the other day. Um, and we went out to see him and he, he approved of the book, which was a relief. And I got to meet him a few times. He was very sick by then. And in fact, he's entrusted me with all the letters from when she left New Zealand. He really wants a book of all the letters from China and Hong Kong and England. I think partly to show that she was in touch with him a lot and really loved him and was not this heartless woman dashing off to further her career elsewhere. Um, so that's something I'm, I'm working on at the moment, amongst other things. But it was, it was really a treat to meet him and to talk with him. But you could still see, I mean, what he was in his 90s, the hurt losing his mother had, had caused him. I'm really glad that, w that we got to spend time with him. It's not difficult to find people in Auckland. You just ask Sam Alworthy at AUP and he pretty much knows everyone, but there's always someone who knows someone. Yes. I can't help thinking of the book Iris um, while you're talking about various things. Um, did that um, come into your um, discussion with Derek and, and your research and that sort of thing? I mean, the book of Iris is biography. Yes. yes. No, absolutely. It was our Bible. Um, it was our absolute Bible because it was so, so thorough. But of course, some things have come to light since that book was published as well. And so we talked about other things. And also, I mean, Shining Land is really, it's a very personal interpretation of things. It is about the journeys we took to the places. Because the original idea of the book, Lloyd-Jones said, you know, you would just, you'll go somewhere that maybe is associated with a writer. And I said it once, Robin Hyde. So I, her and I went off on our separate trips. He came to the South Island, but I wasn't able to. It was just at the beginning of the lockdown, the first one. In fact, we were driving back from up north after one of our research trips for it, getting back to Auckland before lockdown began. Um, so it was about going to the places that were associated with her, and, and definitely the book was our guide. And then trying to replot footsteps. It's very hard in New Zealand because, as you know, we love to knock old things down here. Auckland loves to just knock down anything. You know, that's, you know, oh, it was built five years ago. We must get rid of it. And then... Also, landscapes changed and modified a great deal. So we spent a lot of time staggering about looking for things, imagining where the shack that she lived on over mangroves might have been, this kind of thing. But more, it was a journey about sort of connecting with her work and who she was. That book is fantastic, The Book of Iris. It is very big, though. You have to be kind of an enthusiast. Uh, Paula, could you tell us a little bit more about that photograph behind you? Um, it's a curious sort of photo. It looks as though she's in some kind of slum, almost. She's got a clenched fist. Is that a dressing gown? She looks very unwell. Is she close to death in that photograph? It was quite late. I can't tell you exactly when I was. That's a caravan she's standing in front of. She was living in a caravan for a while, and I feel that a caravan is not a great place to live at the best of times. But in England, I think it's particularly ill-advised because the weather is terrible. But I think I like it because compared with some of the studio pictures we've seen of her, you know, where she went and sat for them and she looked so lovely, 
I think this is probably more realistic of what she was day to day and as things were starting to come to pieces for her. She didn't really care about clothes. She didn't really care about where she lived. She longed for a home that she could have with Derek, but she never really had her own home. She, well, she never had her own home. And while I don't like this picture in many ways, because I do think you can kind of see the end coming in this, I think it's probably more true to who she really was, which was someone who cared more about work than anything else, but to, that she was not in a great way there. Can I ask just one other mm. question about the work? Mm. Uh, what's good? I mean, is she great? What, 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 and which of the books you recommend? Is it the novels, the journalism, the poetry? Uh, I really don't know much about her work at all. I think you would really like Passport to Hell. Passport to Hell is framed as a novel, but it's really, I mean, Starkey, the main character, and it is a real person, and it's the stories he's told her, so it's the story of his life. So it's closer to non-fiction than it is fiction. There are just some parts really about her that are fictionalised in it. I think it's a terrific book, and his accounts of, you know, arriving at Gallipoli or burying his own brother at the Somme are just so vivid and visceral. Um, most... People know uh, Godwitz Fly better. I mean, it absolutely is a Ramana Clef. It absolutely is her life with names changed up to a certain point in it. But I think I would always say to people to read Passport to Hell. Haru's favourite book is Check to Your King, which is a bizarre choice, but it's, Haru really loved it. And it's also the story of um, Baron Dithyria, an eccentric who came from overseas to New Zealand I think that she was really interested in outsiders in, in all her work. And she herself was an outsider, so that makes sense. She was a tremendous outsider. An outsider in all her jobs, an outsider in her family, an outsider in every relationship she was ever in. She was never really the first choice, you know. And then an outsider in her son's life. Um, so that's what drew her to the material. And I would really recommend Passport to Hell if you read nothing else. It was reissued not that long ago, I think, there's a, a good recent edition of it. Especially if you like war books, which I really do. Yeah. This might be the last question, all right. And then we have to go drink wine. <laughs> Absolutely. Don't want to get in the way of that. What initially drew you to Robin Hyde? It's a really good question because when Lloyd said a writer, I just said Robin Hyde without thinking. And I think because she's loomed... I went to university in the 80s, and that was when she was being really embraced by feminist scholars, and so people talked to her about her a, a, a lot then. There was a terrible film made, which you can watch a bit of online, and it's so awful. It involves some woman dancing in the dunes, you know, being like Stevie Nicks-ish. And I thought, for, for, given it's about a woman who walked with a, a stick, I think it's quite bizarre. Um, and a lot of it was focused on her sexuality, and a lot of us fixated on it. I mean, she was obviously very fertile, but she didn't actually sleep with that many people or have very long relationships. It was just her bad luck at the time. And I should say that both her babies were absolutely wanted by her. She really wanted those, those boys, and that's why she was so devastated, I think, when the first baby died. And sometimes I think because she had to compartmentalise her own life into what was public and what was private in different ways. 
and people who knew her at work knew very different things about her than like her close friend from school, Gwen. Um, that maybe that wasn't always apparent to people, the, the real scars and wounds she had. I think she's just a, a complex and interesting person who wrote books that feel ahead of their time in lots of ways. She wouldn't have called herself a feminist, but she was living in a different age as well. She was very well known in literary circles here and also in London. I mean, her, pub her books were all published in London. But she was often on the outs with the boys' club here. You know, Frank Sargison, Dennis Glover. She was often on the outside of all of that. And maybe that's what drew me to her as well. I don't know. I tend to go with my instinct. If I think of something, I'll just go with it. I won't second guess it. I was telling my students not to overthink. I usually underthink my way through life. So, so that's what led me to her, underthinking. Thank you all very much for coming today. I really appreciate it. And I hope this encourages you, if you haven't read any of Hyde's work, to read The Godwits Fly or to read Passport to Hell or any of her poetry or to have a look at um, biography, um, which is massive, <laughs> but to dip into it. But of course, you can get a distilled version of it in my book with Haru, Shining Land, and that might lead you in some interesting directions. Kia ora. That was Paula Morris speaking at the 2022 Marlborough Book Festival. A big thanks to all the writers who have supported the festival, as well as the audiences who attended in person or listened online. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Thanks for listening.